Okay, let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Almighty God, we are gathered here to continue to learn about the saints that have gone before us, those who your spirit has worked through to advance your kingdom in the world. I pray that we will learn from them, that their example will guide us, that you ultimately will guide us, and that we too will be counted among those who have advanced your kingdom. So we pray for learning and for interest and for edification. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay. So, uh, we've kind of had a bit of a hiatus in terms of what we've been discussing in class um, on the the linear trajectory, uh, we ended talking about the Cappadocian Fathers, and I ended very briefly on Ambrose, and we're going to pick up with and talk about him at greater length today. And then, But then after that, I, we talked uh, about Gregory of Nazianzus' uh, Christmas oration, and then we had a real departure, and we, we spent the last time I taught talking about... Uh, the Hasmonean kingdom and the Herods and so on. So today we're, we're actually returning back to our, our linear trajectory through church history. Um, so where we are time-wise is what we would call the late 4th century. And so that's from about 350 to 400 A.D. Or A.D. 350 to 400, I should say. Um, and the church is in, at this time, is in a, a state of upheaval in a lot of ways. It's a quiet upheaval, though, because what you have is the church previously had been in persecution. And that culminated in what we call the great persecutions, and those were done under Diocletian. But what happened after Diocletian? Who became emperor? Constantine. And what did Constantine do? He converted to the... He didn't make everybody Christians. He converted to Christianity, though, and, and gave the church a favored status within the empire. So it went from a persecuted church to a favored church. And the unfortunate thing that, that that's a blessing and a curse. The unfortunate thing, the, the, the blessing is now the church is no longer persecuted. And maybe that's not even a blessing. I mean, as, as Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And a persecuted church is not a comfortable and complacent church. With the comfort of no longer being persecuted comes the complacency. And, and not just the complacency, but as the favored religion of the empire, it now becomes politically advantageous to be a Christian. Do you think that is going to induce authentic conversion to Christ? No. So the church is going to have a new challenge to deal with and that is that is going to be a wealthy and prosperous church and so how that's going to be dealt with 
Well, let's just say it never will be completely dealt with. Though people will rail against that, as we will see today, the, the problem of a wealthy and prosperous church is never going to go away. And it's one that we still live with to this day. But this is the, the beginning of that, at least in terms of where most of the church is. I mean, the, the church in China today is not a wealthy and prosperous church. It is a persecuted church. The church in Iran or Afghanistan is not a wealthy or prosperous church. It is a persecuted church. But that is something that we, we can pray for them, but we can also rejoice in because, as Tertullian says, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The church will grow as people die for his name. So that witness, that testimony is powerful. So... <clears throat> That is the state of the church as we move into what we're going to look at today. And keep in mind, we're still in, if you look at the timeline on the top of the notes, we're still in the era of the theologians. And we're going to talk about three prominent theologians today, one of whom I've already discussed very briefly, but I want to amplify him just a little bit because the contrast that he is going to set against the next leader that we're going to look at is very dramatic. So that first leader that we're going to look at is Ambrose. And he is famous for being the Bishop of Milan. Now, Milan at this time is really the functional capital of the Western Roman Empire. Rome itself has not really been a functional seat of power since the reign of Diocletian, since before Constantine. So it's, its influence, the, the influence of the city itself is, is on the decline. And Milan is the functional capital of the empire. So in the western half of the Roman Empire, and you can see uh, on the back page, there's two maps. Neither of them reflect a happy ending, and we'll get to those maps in a little bit, but it gives you some idea of what the eastern half and western half of the empire look like. Um, and we will get to those maps in, in a bit. Uh, Ambrose, as the bishop of Milan, is the leading church leader in the western Roman Empire because the emperor's seat of power is in Milan, and therefore he is the church leader closest to the emperor. So he's going to be very, very influential. And initially, Ambrose was not interested in a church career. He was a bureaucrat. He was a public servant, but he was a well-educated public servant. And we are going to see again and again, if we haven't seen it already, that education matters. That these people rise to prominence in the church because they are educated, I mean, not because they are educated, but the tools that they are given through their education, they are then able to bring to bear in the study of the word and its proclamation. So it's important to be literate. You cannot read the word of God if you can't read. That seems like a basic proposition, but it's important. You can't proclaim the Word of God if you are not able to proclaim something. I mean, so they have tools that they are being given 
that they are able, through which they are able to be effective. And keep in mind, and this is going to be something that's going to be important throughout the day, is the proclamation of the Word, I mean, it's important now, but in a way it was even more important back then. How many of you brought Bibles to church today? Most of us, right? How many people that went to church in AD 360 probably brought their Bible with them to church? None. Because they didn't have Bibles. I mean, just the production of a single Bible would take years of hand copying every letter of every page. So Bibles were not proliferating back then, and therefore there was an extra burden on the pastors, the shepherds of these flocks, to be able to proclaim the Word of God effectively. Because most people's encounter with the Word of God was through their ears and not through their eyes. So those who had the opportunity to encounter it with their eyes had to be equipped to be extra effective students of the Word. Does that make sense? they got to be really good theologians. they got to be able to study the Bible very well and then in their minds own it in their minds and in their hearts and then translate that through their mouths to their flocks to be able to hear. So when Timothy, when Paul exhorts Timothy to preach the word, that's, he's not just saying, you know, preach it. He's saying, make it possible for people to encounter the word of God. And as we will see today, that's going to be one of the threads that's running through the, lot, the, the importance of all of the leaders we're going to be talking about today. So value your Bibles. We are blessed beyond imagining just in our possession of the Bibles. I mean, I, I've probably got about 25 Bibles at home of different types and translations. And that is, you know, even just a few hundred years ago would have been a wealth beyond imagining. And, and how many of us have, I mean, look at how many Bibles do we have in our pews you can go to a thrift store and how many Bibles are stacked there that people have tossed out. They don't want to throw them away, so they give them to the thrift store. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's a miracle, really, that the Word of God is so available to people. Okay, so Ambrose is educated, and he is taking those tools that he has, and what he, he first, as I was saying, he was a bureaucrat. Well, when the position of the Bishop of Milan came open... And what is the bishop? It's, that's just, it, it comes from the word for, for pastor. He's the pastor of the church in Milan. Brandon, you're our bishop. So it, it would not be uncouth for him to be called that, although we don't use that term because of the baggage it now brings in terms of, of uh, you know, Catholicism and, and, and our, as Protestants, relationship to Catholicism and the eschewing we had of those trappings. So, but it would not be inappropriate for him to be called that. He, he's our pastor. He's our bishop. So, when the position becomes available, Ambrose is kind of hijacked and shoved into that position against his, excuse me, against his will. And so he is going to go from the political scene to the ecclesiastical scene overnight. 
But he is going to embrace that wholeheartedly, and he is going to begin to preach. And he is going to preach and preach and preach and preach effectively. And so he is going to gain in stature as a man of the church and as a man of the word. So much so that the people are with Ambrose. They, they will follow him to the point where, as we'll see in a little bit, they will not follow the political leaders. They are following their spiritual leaders. And uh, one of the things that, and this is going to become a theme again today, <clears throat> one of the things that Ambrose is going to see is, is a clergy that is becoming way too comfortable. They are enjoying the trappings of a wealthy church way too much. So there's a quote there on the first page where he's, he, he says, this is in response to an incident where <clears throat> uh, invading Germans kidnap several people and hold them for ransom. And so Ambrose takes the gold and silver plates and chalices in the church and melts them down in order to pay for the ransom of these people. And a lot of people were upset by this because he was depleting the glory of their church, the physical church. And so he says, It is a better thing to save souls for the Lord than to save treasures. He who sent forth his apostles without gold had not need of gold to form his church. And the church possesses gold not to hoard, but to scatter abroad and come to the aid of the unfortunate. So he's not saying the church shouldn't have treasure. He's saying the church needs to get treasure to use to edify the body, to use for the less fortunate, to care for the poor, to care for those who are in need. It does not accumulate wealth for its own glorification. So he is keenly aware of that, and he is going to act on it repeatedly. And that's going to upset a lot of people. <clears throat> but the biggest test of Ambrose's career is going to come in the form of his encounter with the emperor Theodosius. Now, we'll, and we'll talk about Theodosius a little more in a bit, but, or what happens after him. But he is, he is famous for a lot of reasons. He was actually a good emperor but he was also the last emperor that ruled over the United Roman Empire. So after his death, he's going to leave the western half to one son and the eastern half to his other son, and never again will they be united. So this is the beginning. His death marks the beginning of the end of the Western Roman Empire. Not the east, but the west. But, uh, and I, I talked about this briefly you know, a month ago, but uh, Theodosius is going to, in a fit of anger, order the slaughter of about 7,000 people in the, uh, in the arena in the city of Thessalonica. Thessalonica. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, Ambrose is going to hear about this, and he's going to be disgusted by it, because Theodosius is a devout man. I mean, he is a devout Christian, and he has acted on that devotion many times. But in this fit of anger, he has sinned grievously, kind of like David in his sin with Bathsheba. He was the man after God's own heart, but obviously still capable of grievous sins. 
and Theodosius is the same. But who is going to call the ruler of the world to account? Well, nobody did. Until Theodosius got to Milan, and he was going into church to partake of communion, and Ambrose stood at the door and barred the emperor of the world's entry into the church, saying, you cannot partake of communion until you have repented of your sins. Bold, to say the least. And to his credit, Theodosius will repent. And he will enact for himself a public penance, which was so far beneath the dignity of the emperor, any emperor, what people considered uh, the kind of thing that an emperor should be subjected to, that it, it scandalized people. Like People were scandalized that Theodosius publicly submitted himself to humiliation and repudiation. And he went through the city of Milan and allowed the peasants to, the people, they're not peasants yet, but to ridicule him and to throw trash on him. And, and he, he allowed that to happen. And it had never before had the dignity of an emperor been subjected to that. So, but that never would have happened if Ambrose had not barred the door and said, you cannot partake of communion until you have made yourself right with God. So that, though, is going to be a profound precedent. And we'll talk more about that precedent in a little bit. But from, so, that's all I want to say about Ambrose for right now. So you can turn to page two, and I want to talk about one of Ambrose's contemporaries. And that is, in the East, in the Eastern Roman Empire, a man named John Chrysostom. Now, Chrysostom is not his given name. That's not his last name. It, it's Greek for the golden-mouthed because John was, by all accounts, considered the greatest preacher of the ancient church. So he, he was a profound expositor of the word in a way that few people had even approached, and he surpassed them all by, by, by all assessments in that day. And so his, his name was simply John, but he is known to us as John Chrysostom. And John <clears throat> was born in Antioch, and like many other men who would lead the church, and next week we're going to talk about Augustine, and you'll see that this is true in uh, intimate detail in the life of Augustine, and we'll, we'll talk about it. But as young men, they strayed from the church. And John is going to study under a famous pagan teacher by the name of Libanius. And he's going to, again, learn many skills that are going to become important to him as a preacher. In particular, his ability with rhetoric, which is the ability to speak well and persuade people through the spoken word. And so John is going to become a master of rhetoric. When Libanius is dying and those of his school come to him 
and say, who should succeed you as the leader of the school? He says, John, but the Christians have already laid claim to him. Because John is going to leave Libanius' school and he is going to repent and convert to Christianity. And he is going to go out into the desert and he is going to live a life of extreme asceticism and deprivation for two years. So extreme and so deprived will he be that it will damage his health and his health will never be the same for the rest of his life. He's always going to be sick after that. He's never going to be right physically. But he is brought back to Antioch at the end of those two years and he is going to be made an elder of the church in Antioch. Now, in the, Eastern, in the Roman Empire at this time, there are five great cities. And Rome, even though it's in its decline, is still the greatest of these cities. Its decline is political, not necessarily economic or, or uh, you know, physical, like it's, the city is, is declining. Its political influence has, is evaporated. But Rome itself is still a symbol of the empire. So the other great cities are uh, Carthage in Africa, which we'll talk about tomorrow, Constantinople, the New Rome, Alexandria, Egypt, and Antioch. So those are the five great cities of the empire. And there's other big cities, but those are the five great cities. And so to be an elder of the church of Antioch is, is a position of esteem and influence. And as elder, John is going to start to preach in the church. And his preaching is, is rapidly going to overtake all the other leader the preaching of the other leaders of the church in Antioch and his influence as is going to spread far outside the city and there's going to be something of a revival in the city as John preaches unsparingly the gospel to the people there and they are going to either repent of their complacency or repent of their paganism and there's going to be revival in the city and John is, is going to be the primary author of that. However, there is a fly in Antioch's ointment, and that is that the, John's fame is going to grow far greater than he realizes. And when the position of bishop of the church in Constantinople becomes available, without John's knowledge somewhat similar to Ambrose, John is going to be appointed by the emperor himself to fill that position. And in order for John to actually make it to Constantinople and to avoid riots in Antioch, he's summoned to a meeting at night with what he thinks is going to be some churchmen, and he is shoved into a carriage and hauled off to Constantinople. He's shanghaied to become the leader of the most influential church of the East. And, but John accepts this as God's will. And he, he willingly steps into the role, but not for his own aggrandizement, but for the purification of the church. And 
he is going to come to Constantinople and find this church uh, hedonistic. He's going to find that many pastors who have, not all, pastors at this time were not all celibate, like in the Catholic Church today. But pastors making a vow of celibacy was becoming increasingly popular, and not mandatory, but popular. However, and John was a part of this, I mean, he took a vow of celibacy, uh, not because he felt like the Bible demanded it, but he wanted to live according to the way Paul did. You know, I mean, he, he sought to model what Paul was espousing as the preferable life for a leader of the church. And so, but when he gets to Constantinople, he's going to find that many of these priests have taken public and showy vows of celibacy, but at home they have what they call spiritual sisters that are living with them as basically their wives. And so he is going to bring that to an end real fast. And he is going to ship either the sisters out of the city or the pastors are going to get shipped out, one or the other. And so he is, in, in, in many ways, uh, I mean, he's going to follow a similar line in, in purifying the church in many other ways, one of which is, like Ambrose, with its wealth. So, and he is going to go even further than Ambrose does in preaching the, the eschewing of wealthy trappings within the church. He says, I have a few quotes from him here. He says, the gold bit on your horse, the gold circlet on your wrist of your slave, the gilding on your shoes, that's gold lining or gold thread, mean that you are robbing the orphan and starving the widow. When you have passed away, each passerby who looks upon your great mansion will say, how many tears did it take to build that mansion? How many orphans were stripped? How many widows wronged? How many laborers deprived of their honest wages? Even death itself will not deliver you from your accusers. He says, do you wish to honor the body of Christ? Do not ignore him when he is naked. Do not pay him homage in the temple clad in silk. Only then to neglect him outside where he is cold and ill clad. He who said, this is my body, is the same who said, you saw me hungry and you gave me no food. And whatever you did to the least of my brothers, you also did to me. What good is it? If the Eucharistic table is overloaded with golden chalices when your brother is dying of hunger, start by satisfying his hunger, and then with what is left, you may adorn the altar as well. <clears throat> I couldn't really commit this to the notes because I just couldn't bring myself to do it, but at one point, John even goes so far as to say, do you... Honest, do you honor your excrement so much that you use a silver chamber pot and yet deny that treasure to the hungry? So he is really bringing it home, not on the rich per se because they have wealth, but how they use it. So he is not against wealth, 
like Ambrose, he is against the improper use of wealth. So he recognizes that God makes some wealthy for a reason, but they then are responsible for how they utilize that. But what he is seeing is a very poor utilization of wealth. And he is going to rail on that consistency, consistently. But ultimately, that railing is going to land on ears that will resist it, particularly those of the empress, whose name is Ilia Eudokia. And she is going to feel like, and probably not inaccurately, John is looking at her when he is preaching and saying these things. And she is going to pester her husband, the emperor, who is the son of Theodosius, the emperor Arcadius. And Arcadius is a weak and very ineffective ruler. And she is going to convince him to have John exiled. And so John will be exiled. And like his, in effect, exile from Antioch, though, he will also accept this as God's will. And he will go out into the wilderness in exile. And a couple years later, he will die. And that is the end of the ministry of John Chrysostom. We're going to talk more about him theologically in a minute. But what I want to point out is the contrast between him and Theodosius. Ambrose is not the last bishop in the West who will stand up to a powerful emperor and be victorious, and the emperor will submit. Or king, or other ruler in the West. And Chrysostom will not be the last powerful man of the church who will be shipped off by not a, even a strong ruler, but by a weak ruler. And that will be the end of his ministry. And that is setting the tone for the two different divergent traditions in the church. The East and the West are all going to be one church until 1054. And we'll talk about that in a couple weeks when they split. But even before that official split, they are churches on different trajectories. And in the East, the emperors, weak as they may be or strong as they may be, are going to run roughshod over the church. And in the West, the church is going to gain more and more political power until somebody's not going to be king until the church says they're going to be king. That's why, I don't know if anyone's ever seen that famous painting of the crowning of Napoleon. Now, this is long after the Middle Ages and the scope of this class. But when Napoleon in 1804 is crowned emperor of France, not king of France, but emperor, and he is modeling himself on Roman emperors, the Pope comes to Paris to crown Napoleon as the Pope had crowned, or the Pope's delegates had crowned so many other European rulers. And as the Pope is lifting the crown to place it on Napoleon's head, 
Napoleon suddenly snatches it out of his hand and puts it on his own head. And he is, in a, he is very, in a visceral way, ending that influence of the popes. But that influence is going to start with Ambrose. Now, Ambrose is not guilty of that, the stigma that we're going to associate with the popes in the, you know, in the Middle Ages. He, is, he was doing a good thing, but the, the example that he sets of corralling the ambitions of the secular rulers is one that's going to reverberate throughout the Middle Ages. Likewise, the example that John Chrysostom is going to set by allowing the secular rulers to control him, not control him, but to have control over his position is also going to set a powerful example. And I don't think that's to the fault of John, just as it's not to the fault of Ambrose. But those are precedents that are going to be set that are going to be repeated over and over again for the next thousand plus years. So, but John's importance is far more than just his, his eschewing of the trappings of wealth and, and all of that kind of thing. What he's really important for is for his preaching. And the influence that he is going to have on the church to this day through his theology and through his hermeneutics. So let's talk about those. Um, first, John is absolutely concerned with the authority of Scripture. He puts total authority in the Word of God. So all of his preaching is going to come from the Scriptures. And he's going to preach through many, many, many of the books of the Bible. Not every single book but most of them. He's going to preach a series of sermons on most of the books of the Bible, something we still strive to do to this day. But he is going to recognize uh, its authority, but also the need for its literal translation. And that is key, because John was preaching at a time when there was... Uh, a rise in allegorical interpretation. So allegorical would mean that there's like a, the hidden meaning, there's layers of hidden meanings in the text. And you can take allegorical interpretation of Scripture all sorts of ways. I mean, you can read allegory into anything. I mean, I can read allegory into today's bulletin in the church. You know, I mean, you can read allegory into anything. And, and that was something that was becoming increasingly popular in the church and leading to theological error in the church. And John is going to say, no, we need to understand the Word of God in its literal sense. And so he is going to set that precedent that we still strive to follow to this day, he says, For we ought to unlock the passage by first giving a clear interpretation of the words. What then does the saying mean? We must not attend to the words merely, but turn our attention to the sense, 
and learn the aim of the speaker and the cause and the occasion, and by putting all of these together, turn out the hidden meaning. He's not saying you get to allegorize it any way you want to. You get to use these excuse me, words as pictures that you can draw meaning from any way you want to. You have to interpret it literally. What the author was saying matters. What the author's intent was matters. What the occasion of the writing was matters. Today, if you open your Bibles, a lot of, if, if you have like a study Bible or even a, not a study Bible, a lot of times they'll have uh, a, like a one-page introduction and it'll hit on these points. It'll say, you know, okay, who wrote it? What was the occasion for writing it? What was the date? What was the purpose of the writing? You know, and, John, and those are all things that we still usually have in our Bibles today. And John was stressing all of these things 1,600 years ago. So he was setting the template for good hermeneutics near the beginning of the church. And others before him had been doing this as well, but John is going to take it even further. And he's going to be bedrock on the need for a literal interpretation of Scripture. And so what does he get from that? And that is, he stresses grace in salvation. So that is going to be the hammer by which John will preach over and over and over again is grace by faith. Do we preach that? Yes, we do. So, I just, I mean, and there are many, many, many quotes that one can take from his sermons uh, that touch on this, and I included two, both from the book of Romans. Again, remember, he's preaching through the whole book, uh, which was kind of a, a new concept back then. Other preachers before him would preach on a section of a book or on an idea, and there's certainly worth in those things, but John was saying, let's take the whole book and I'm going to preach through it. So, he says about Romans 3.27, he says, and this is where, where Paul talks about the principle of faith or the law of faith, and he says, but what, but what is this law of faith? It is being saved by grace. Here he, Paul, shows God's power in that he has not only saved, but has even justified and led them to boasting. And this, is, this too without needing works, but looking for faith only. About Romans 5.2 he says, If then he has brought us near to himself when we were far off, much more will he keep us now that we are near. And let me beg you to consider how he everywhere sets down these two points, his part and our part. On his part, however, there be things varied and numerous and diverse, for he died for us and further reconciled us and brought us to himself and gave us grace unspeakable. But we brought faith only as our contribution. I mean, that still preaches today. So John was a, a profoundly important leader of the church. And just as an interesting note, he's one of the last 
if not the last, and I'm not sure if he's the last, but he's one of the last leaders of the Eastern Church that is universally revered even in the Western Church to this day. So after John, that separation between the East and the West is going to really start to accelerate. And that's not to say that there isn't still value found in the East, because next week we're going to, well, not next week, but the week after that, we'll talk about the Chalcedon and the Chalcedonian Creed, and that's really important. But after that, it starts, things just start to go in different directions. Um, oh boy, I got 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes. Okay, so let's, let's move on from John and let's talk about Jerome. And Jerome, we're moving back to the West now, and Jerome is an interesting guy. He He's kind of a, well, in some ways, he's kind of a jerk. Uh, he was just, he just had a really irritable character that peop, just rubbed people the wrong way. But he was, he was a very humble uh, man who loved God and, and sought to pursue holiness like John through asceticism, through denial and, and things like that. But John, or Jerome... In Latin, his name is Hieronymus. So, if you ever wonder what where the name Jerome comes from, it comes. It's actually a anglicization of the Latin name Hieronymus. So, you may have heard of the painter Hieronymus Bosch, or uh, yeah. Anyway, that was a TV show. Uh, I'm getting my painters mixed up. Anyway, uh, Jerome, though, is a scholar. And in, in a lot of ways, he is the greatest scholastic of the early church. And despite his asceticism, he's going to find that he needs financial support because he can go live in self-deprivation and pray and meditate, which are all good things, but he's going to find that despite that, he is compelled to accumulate books and to study. And... Those two things don't really fit together too well. And so Jerome is ultimately going to give, him, give up the more aesthetic life, ascetic, and he is going to pursue scholastics. And in order to do that, he is going to develop a, a group of patrons that are financially going to support him for most of his life. And ultimately, interestingly enough, most of his patrons are actually going to be women. And because of their influence on him, you will find that many, many, many of Jerome's writings, more than most of the other, any other of the early church fathers, is going to be concerned with the life of women as believers. And so he is, he is going to write extensively on that subject. Most of those writings that you're going to find are in his letters. So we have many, many, many of his letters still existing to this day, and most of those are going to be written to Paula, who was his primary patron, and to her daughter Eustochium, who is also going to uh, be an important patron. And ultimately, uh, Jerome is going to move from Rome to Bethlehem, and Paula and Eustochium are going to follow him to Bethlehem and live there with him, continuing to support him. Now, why would he need support, and why would he move to Bethlehem? 
because Jerome is convinced that there needs to be the most accurate translation of the Bible possible. And so he, because what's the Bible written in? The Old Testament is written in what? Hebrew, and the New Testament is written in what? Greek. So prior to Jerome, most people had access to the Old Testament through what we call the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was made about 250 years before Christ was born. That was the primary translation that people read, but if you didn't read Greek and you only read Latin, then you had a problem accessing the Old Testament. If you didn't read Greek and you only read Latin, which pretty much everyone in the empire read either Greek or Latin, and a lot of people did both, but if you didn't read Latin, you had a problem accessing the New Testament as well. And so he wanted there to be a Latin translation for the entire Bible, and there had been a few partial attempts at this. And for the Old Testament, people had consistently gone and just translated the Septuagint out of Greek into Latin. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, now you're going from Hebrew to Greek to Latin. You're going to lose some sense in what is being translated. And so he is going to move back to Bethlehem and live there for years and years and years just so he could learn Hebrew, just so he could translate the Bible accurately from its original language in the Old Testament into Latin, and thereby provide an accurate translation for half of the empire or half of the churches in the world at that time. And so he is going to dedicate his life to that work. And that work is what we have today, is what we call the the Vulgate anyone familiar with that term. That is the primary Bible that Western Christianity is going to utilize for the next thousand years plus. So Jerome's influence on the church is profound in his transmission of God's word as accurately as he possibly can for generations to come and it's still considered it's like the king james of latin bibles it's uh it wasn't just that it was a a good translation from the original languages but his latin was really really good and so he like jerome's translation of the psalms is considered high poetry so it, it's really, really good. And it's still possible to get, uh, you know, a copy of his Latin translation. So if anyone wants to see it, if you guys want to read some psalms in Latin, it's, it's actually really cool stuff. I mean, you may not understand it unless you know the psalm by heart, but just the beauty of the words is, I mean, the, the, the alliteration and so on is really good. Um, and so, so Jerome's influence is is far-reaching because of his translational efforts. Plus, he is also going to set the paradigm of seeking out those original translate, the original languages and translating them as accurately as possible. When we get to the Reformation, this is going to be a big deal. Martin Luther is going to seek out a Greek translation 
of the New Testament, and he is going to learn Hebrew so that he can translate the Bible into German and make the first German translation. Wycliffe is going to do the same thing. The translators of the King James Version are going to do the same thing, and so on to this, very, to this present day. If you go to seminary, you're, you know, for an, an advanced degree, you're not going to graduate if you haven't come away with Greek and Hebrew because of the importance that we recognize that there is in understanding the word in its original language because it matters in how you translate it. doesn't mean every Christian has to know it, but some people do. And Jerome is going to set that paradigm. Uh, it's interesting, in the book of Jonah, he... Uh, <clears throat> <laughs> in the Septu- he really upset people, and I don't know why this became an issue, but he upset a lot of people because the word in the Septuagint for the plant that Jonah plants there in his little watch post to watch over Nineveh, in, in the Septuagint, it says it's a gourd. But when Jerome translates the Vulgate, he translates it as ivy because that's actually the better translation from the Hebrew. And that upset people no end. And so he, from that point on, he referred to the people that opposed his translation as gordists. <laughs> and I've even heard people call King James only uh, proponents, gordists, because they, they're opposing a better translation. But anyway, that's, I'm not wading into that issue. I'm just, this is not something that's new to the church is what I'm saying. So, you have a question? Absolutely. Yep, it is. So, it, Solomon's right. There's nothing new under the sun. Um, so, uh, the last significant contribution that Jerome makes is uh, after spending years and years and years translating the Bible into Latin, he had immersed himself in Scripture so much he had a lot to say about it. And so he wrote the first series of commentaries on every single book of the Bible. And we still have them to this day. So you can read... Uh, what Jerome thought of every single book and in his insights into those books, which it's pretty interesting stuff. So, um, okay. So in the last few minutes that I have today, and, and this is where the maps are going to come into play in the back of the, of the notes. So in the, the, the bottom half of, of the, uh, about the last page of, of, of writing in the notes, I want to talk about uh, an event that is going to have far-reaching impact, and that is the fall of the Western Roman Empire. So, uh, we're not done talking about the church, but I need, I need to talk about some political stuff just to set the stage for next week. We're going to talk about Augustine, who in a lot of ways is, is the forerunner of, of the Reformation, Luther, Calvin, they're all going to look to Augustine as, as their theological father in a lot of ways. And so, but Augustine is going to live through, the beginning of his life, is gonna, the Roman Empire is going to be strong. 
And he's going to live through the dismemberment of the Western Empire. And when he dies, when he, he dies from, with literally a barbarian army at the gates of his city. And so it's going to be a rapid change that's going to influence not just the political makeup of, of Europe and the fate of Western Christianity, but also some of his, his theological insights that he's going to have. And, and honestly, I think in this day where we are experiencing uh, the decline of an old order and, and the collapse of an old way of looking at things, uh, Augustine will have a lot of insight for us as Christians as to how to live through those things in a godly fashion. So we'll talk about that next week. I'm doing, but for now, I just want to talk about what happens to Rome. So as I said earlier, in 395, the empire was split in half. In each son of Theodosius got a half. Now this wasn't the first time there'd been an Eastern emperor and a Western emperor. But this is the first time that they're never going to come back together again. And in, so 15 years later, in 410, the Visigoths, who are one of many Germanic tribes that are pushing in on the empire from across the Rhine River, they're going to penetrate all the way down Italy into Rome, and they're going to sack the city of Rome. And that's the first time in 800 years that a foreign army has occupied the city of Rome. So the last time that happened was in 390 B.C. So that gives you an idea of just how earth-shattering that was. I mean, Rome was considered inviolate, and you know, it was the eternal city. And now it was crushed under the boots of a bunch of you know, raw and abrasive barbarians. So that was... That was a, a real uh, shock that everybody uh, had to deal with. Um, along with the Visigoths, lots of other barbarian tribes invaded across the Rhine and across the Danube. We get Franks, Alemanni, uh, Suevs, Burgundians, Saxons. And if anyone... You know, Franks, who, what do you th- who do you think def- descends from the Franks? France. Does anyone here speak Spanish? Does anyone know what the German, uh, the French or Spanish word for Germany is? What? Aleman. And that, why is it called Aleman? Well, it's because one of the other German tribes to come in and conquer that part of the Roman Empire is called the Alemanni. And so the name just stuck for the last 2,000 years or 1,500 years. So it really made an impression. But the Franks, the Alemanni, they're gonna, they are going to be the progenitors of both Germany and France. And we'll get to them a little later. But they're all going to come crashing across the border, including another tribe called the Vandals. And uh, the Vandals are... And yes, the word that we use today comes from them as well. They're going to go all the way through France, all the way through Spain, cross the Straits of Gibraltar, and they are going to take over Roman North Africa. So North Africa, you can look on the map on the back page. Uh, The Germans actually are going to just piece by piece dismember the Western Roman Empire, and they're going to each take over their own little section 
and uh, the vandals are even in 455 going to come up from the south and they're going to sack Rome a second time. There's a famous uh, archway near the, the Roman Forum called the Arch of Titus. Titus being the Roman general and future emperor who sacked Jerusalem in 70 AD, burned the temple. On his arch, there's a famous sculpture of Roman soldiers hauling the giant menorah out of the temple. And that menorah was taken to Rome and put in one of the temples in Rome as a booty from that war. Big gold menorah the size of three or four men. Well, the vandals, when they're going to come up to Rome and sack it, they're going to do a much worse job than the Visigoths did. They're going to take everything. If it wasn't bolted down, weighed down, whatever, they stripped it clean and they took it, including the giant menorah that came from the temple in Jerusalem. They're going to take it down to Carthage and put it in one of their churches down there. That's not the end of the story of the menorah. We'll get to that later. But it's, it's an interesting little historical tidbit. I mean, that's probably the menorah that was in the temple when Jesus was in the temple. So it's, just, it's got an interesting history to it. Anyway, uh, prior to that, who's ever heard of Attila the Hun? You know, we all heard of Attila the Hun. He was called the Scourge of God. And he came in and he just beat army after army after army and nobody could stand up against him. And he was invading Italy. Well, he invaded Italy and he, there was a major city in Italy called Aquileia. And he did a, a number on Aquileia. He raised it to the ground so much that people couldn't even tell where the city was. But the citizens of the city fled on boats to islands in the lagoon outside of the city, and that was the genesis of the city of Venice. We'll get to that later, too. But uh, from Aquileia, uh, Attila the Hun's going to move further south into Italy, and there is no army to oppose him. But the bishop of Rome is a man named Leo. Sometimes he's called Leo the Great. He is going to go out, and he is going to encounter Attila the Hun himself, and famously, no one knows what was said between them. But Attila is going to take his army and turn around and leave Italy. And that, building on Ambrose's example, is going to be one of the things that's going to be looked at to make the popes, the bishop of Rome, supreme. Because the emperor was hiding away in his little fortress, not dealing with Attila, hoping he'll go away. Who goes out to deal with him? The Pope and what army? So it's left to the church to deal with the threats to the people. The, the civil government is deteriorating so rapidly that they are not dealing with the problems that the people are facing. And the Pope... He's not really the Pope as we know it yet, but the Bishop of Rome, the leader of the church in Rome, is having, going to have to deal with this on his own. But deal with it, he will. And I'll skip the rest because I'm out of time, except to say that in 476, the last emperor of the Western Roman Empire is quietly going to abdicate, and that will mark the end of the empire 
in the West. And usually that's the date that people look to as the fall of the Roman Empire, because in Western Europe it is now gone. In the East, though, it's still strong. And in the East it will persevere for another thousand years. And the Eastern Roman Empire will not finally succumb until 40 years before Columbus discovers America. So it, it's got a thousand more years of history before it. So we often know it as the Byzantine Empire, if you've heard of that. That is the Eastern Roman Empire. So that fall of the West, though, is going to have a profound impact on the church that we will come back and revisit at tomorrow and, and for a couple of weeks going as, as we move into the Middle Ages of the church. Um, but that, that, that is a very, very important date to, to keep in mind. So, so that brings me to the end. Are there any questions? No questions? Not that can be verbalized. Okay. Well, then let, uh, let us close in prayer. <clears throat> Lord, I thank you for your word and for those who have given us an example from old days to read it, to study it, to know it, and to know you through it, to have a proper hermeneutic so that we may truly see your Son revealed before us. As the author of Hebrews said, he, you have spoken through your prophets, but in these latter days you have spoken through your Son, the greatest revelation. So I thank you for the example of those who have followed him before us, and I pray that we will continually strive to emulate them, to seek humility before you, to seek struggle for you, and ultimately to seek your glory. We ask all these things in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.